Well, today we're going to take a look at John chapter 16, and um, it's very interesting. If you know me at all, you, you know a little bit about my past, that, that I grew up in a very suburban environment. Now, I'm not necessarily ashamed of that. I had a great upbringing. It was a great thing for me. But one thing that I missed in my upbringing in a suburban environment was any sense of diversity. You know, I, all my friends were pasty white boys like me. And, uh, and so that's kind of, that's kind of how it worked, you know? And so when I, when I was a kid or even when I was in high school, was I'd, I'd hear people talk about what it was like to be a minority in the United States. It, it just didn't really register with me. I, I really had no idea what they were talking about and, and I didn't understand what the big, big deal was. I didn't understand. I mean, can't we just all get along, right? And stop making such a big deal about this minority and diversity thing. And I didn't really get it. And and even though I went to a, a to college at a college in the smack dab in the middle of downtown Chicago, nonetheless, still, while I had a much more experience of diversity there, I was still, when I went to class and in my dorm and when I was on campus, I was still in the majority. And so it just never really registered to me what it was like to be a minority. It was like a barrier, and it was a, probably a thick barrier, and, and I didn't even realize it was there. That is until when I was in seminary, I decided to take a class called pastoral counseling. Now, uh, my seminary program was three years long. It was coming to the end. I had to get this class in, and so I was trying to figure out where to take it, and I discovered there was an extension site. It was an evening class. It was uh, off of campus, and it fit. I could make it work. I could graduate in time, so I just signed up. And when I got the information about the class, I discovered the class wasn't on campus. It was, it was on the other side of the city of Chicago at a local church. And so I thought, okay, well, what I didn't realize is that the class wasn't pastoral counseling. It was urban pastoral counseling. And I drove to a part of the city that I had never been to before. And I remember driving up to this church and I walked in the class and it took me about five minutes in this class to realize that this wasn't going to be just a normal, ordinary class for me. Because when I looked around, there was only one other pasty white boy in the class, right? The, the rest of these were African-American and other, uh, and other races from, from the city. And, and they were there. And for the first time, it was like a barrier came down. I was like, I realized, so this is what it's like to be a minority. And it was kind of unnerving for me, to be honest. I just never experienced that before. Over the course of that semester, I learned a ton. But perhaps one of the most important things that happened to me that day was that barrier coming down. It was a barrier I didn't even know existed, and it was a barrier that came flying down. And for the first time in my life, I saw life from a a whole new perspective. It was really good and positive for me. Fast forward a few years to September 11th, 2001. Everyone remembers where they were that day. Most people do anyway. I remember uh, driving into the church office there in Indianola, and the radio was on in 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 the office when I walked in, which never happened. And what's going on? And so we went into the, to the big sanctuary and watched the news on these big screens and watched everything that was happening. And, and I remember feeling a feeling that day that I'm not really proud of, but it was a feeling of wanting vengeance. I mean, let those Arabs and Muslims get what's coming to them. Let's go, boys. Get the jets fired up. Let's go. Take them down. I'm not proud of that. It wasn't until seven years later that I went to the Muslims and Arabs and discovered the joy and passion that I would have for a people that before I just, they were just a people. 
You know, a barrier came crashing down when I stepped into a country where I was again the minority and, and I discovered a love for these people whom before I just sort of had vengeance for. A barrier was broken down. Something changed. Now you may wonder, what, does the, what are those two stories, Dave? What do those have to do with John cha- the last 10 verses in John chapter 16? Well, I would contend that today there exists a barrier there exists a barrier between humanity and God the Father. It's not just one barrier, but there's several. And these barriers were created by sin. These barriers prevented us from truly knowing or relating to God. You know, in my, in my case, the barriers that I talked about were broken down when I went to the people that I didn't understand. In God's case, he didn't wait for us to come to him to break down the barriers. He came to us. God came to us. It's really an amazing concept when you think about this. If there's a barrier between us and God and we were powerless to do it, God came to us. And he did it in two ways. He, he, He destroyed these barriers. He broke down barriers in two ways. The first one was through the incarnation. And that's not incarnation in breakfast, right? That's the incarnation is this idea of God becoming flesh. He became one of us. And he broke down a barrier that existed. And then the second way he broke down barriers was simply through his death and resurrection. When Jesus died and rose again, he broke down another barrier. And so last week, as we've been plugging through the Gospel of John, last week we uh, really toyed with the verses right before this. And we began to see that the disciples had grief. Jesus is telling them, grief is coming to you, okay? Grief is on its way. And then he says, but you will have joy. And the grief, of course, he's referring to his own death that's coming. And the joy he's referring to is the resurrection. And then he continues, and we wrapped up last week with verse 22 of chapter 16, which says this. So it will be with you. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again, and you will rejoice. And no one will take away your joy. No one will do it. You see, this week... Jesus is continuing this theme of death and resurrection and joy and peace. He's just, we're just, I mean, the words are right after what he spoke. And we're just continuing with this idea. In verse 23, we see Jesus say these, a couple of words that are important for us to get the context of what we're going to talk about today. And the first phrase is the phrase, in that day. In that day, verse 23. In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. In that day. And then in verse 25, Jesus refers again to the time, my time is coming, or that then the hour. Now, th- these are really important words because they set the context for what we're going to talk about. If you remember, as we've been in the Gospel of John for a long time now, we talked about Jesus uttering this phrase over and over again. My time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. He kept saying that all through the Gospel of John. And then he says, the night, the, uh, a couple nights here before he's betrayed in, in the upper room, he says, my time has come. And Jesus is using that same word here to say, to talk about this hour. And what Jesus is letting us know is that this this subject that he's going to talk about here has everything to do with what happens when he rises from the dead. The disciples can't process all this yet. But everything he said in that time, in that hour, no longer referring to his death, but now referring to his resurrection. When the time comes, in other words, Jesus is telling his disciples right now, things are not right. But soon they will be. 
Jesus is going to say that right now in this passage before he's dead, right now in this passage before he dies, things are not right. Something was not quite right in the relationship between humanity and the Father. There are barriers in place. Not all is right. I think you and I have a general sense when we just go through life that not all is quite right. There's a longing in us that it just isn't filled correctly. It just feels like there's a hole in us. I love C.S. Lewis's quote. Throw that up there. C.S. Lewis says, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Do you know you and I were made to know the Father? Adam and Eve did know the Father, but they sinned. Sin wrecked everything. You remember in the garden, Adam and Eve walked and strolled and talked with God. All was right. All was how it was supposed to be. But sin wrecked it all. So not all is quite right in this world. There are barriers in place. As we stroll through the Old Testament, a quick reading of the Old Testament reveals over and over again. We had this law of Moses. And the law of Moses is almost a reminder that not all is right. I mean, it's a reminder that no matter how we try to keep the perfect law of God, no one can keep it completely. And it's sim- there's this barrier is symbolized in the temple. If you remember how the temple was set up, the temple was set up with outer courts and inner courts. And in the inner courts, there was the, the holy place and then a curtain between the holy place and the holy of holies. And in Luke 23, Luke gives us these details that really... If you don't understand this, they just seem insignificant. At the moment of Jesus' death, he says the veil of this temple was torn from top to bottom. I mean, it's a symbol of this barrier being broken down. Jesus broke through barriers. and It's not until you and I understand the barriers that he broke through that we can really appreciate and live differently. Because we tend to live like these barriers are still in place. We tend to forget that Jesus came through his death and resurrection to break down barriers. We tend to forget this and we sort of live like these barriers are still in place. And so today, I want to identify these four barriers that exist between us and the fathers. And and these are the four barriers that Jesus talks about in the text today. I'm just stealing them right out of the text. I want to talk about these four barriers that exist between uh, us and the Father. And I want to show you how the death and resurrection of Jesus broke down these barriers. And so here's barrier number one. The first barrier that Jesus broke was prayer. He broke through the barrier of prayer. And we're going to see this in verses 23 and 24 of the text. In these next two verses, Jesus is talking about the disciples' prayer life. Now look what he says here in the first half of 23. He says, In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. I mean, do you see that this implies that the disciples have been asking Jesus stuff? They've been asking Jesus for his power and for his understanding. I mean, they've been asking him for his power. They wanted to tap into this Jesus guy, you know, this super miracle worker. And they wanted to tap into the power. But they've also been trying to tap into his understanding. They loved it. They loved it when Jesus explained what he was talking about, you know. Jesus would tell a story and nobody would get it. And then he'd pull his disciples aside and they'd, they'd just hound him. Give me the information. Tell me what it means, you know. And they'd been asking. But they missed something. 
So in verse 23, the second half of the text there, he says this, I tell you the truth, my father will give you whatever you ask in my name. See, what this is revealing is that the disciples didn't really understand who Jesus was. They thought he was the answer man or the power broker. And their requests up to this point had reflected that. Jesus was going to give them direct access to the father. All right, so we're, uh, we live post-resurrection, right? Jesus has already died and risen from the grave. And, and so today, what this means for us is, and, is that you and I can ask the Father directly. Jesus made it possible through Jesus, he made it possible for us to ask the Father directly. That's why in the Lord's Prayer, when we can pray our Father who is in heaven. Hallowed be your name. We can pray to the Father because Jesus made it possible. We have to understand that prayer is an essential part of our relationship between us and the Father. If we view prayer, friends, if, listen, if we view prayer as a religious duty, if we do this, it will become a barrier to sweet communion with the Father. I would guess that most of us have a nagging feeling that we don't pray enough. But if I were just to poll you, most of you have this nagging feeling somewhere that you don't spend enough time in prayer. And to be fair, most sermons sort of back up this feeling, right? You know, if you boil down sermon applications, you're going to get these three. Pray more, read your Bible more, and sin less. Okay? I mean, that's what they're all going to boil down to you about. And so most of us have this nagging feeling that we, we, we don't pray enough. Friends, the problem is not the amount of our prayer but the content of our prayer. In verse 23, the second half there, look look what he says. He says, "Um, I tell you the truth, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Friends, this is not a formula. We do always pray at the end of our prayer, in Jesus' name, amen. That's a sort of a formula we've introduced. The reason for that is because we understand we go through Jesus to pray directly to the Father. And so what we do, Jesus has paved the way. It's a way of reminding us of that when we say, in Jesus' name, amen. But it's not a formula. It's a way of understanding and saying, I'm praying according to God's will. And the only way to truly understand God, don't miss this, okay? The only way to truly understand the Father is through Jesus. But that's not how we'd normally pray. Normally pray things like, um, okay, God, I'm here to pray, and I don't really know what to pray. So I've got my grandma, and, you know, I've got this laundry list, and, and, you know, I've got these things that I need you to do for me, God. So if you could show up here, X, Y, Z, and do these three things, and, and I got through my laundry list, and I don't know what else to pray, so in Jesus' name, amen, right? There's a difference between how a believer prays and how a non-believer prays. For example, um, I, I think uh, the, at the Miss America pageant, they pray. Right? They pray for world peace. <laughs> Every Miss America contestant prays for world peace. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of that. Um, if you've ever seen that Sandra Bullock movie, you understand what I'm talking about. World peace, world peace, right? Uh, but the believer, the, the non-believer just prays for things. The believer prays for world peace, but through Jesus. We don't just pray that, oh, can't everyone just get along? No, we pray that Jesus would come to the world and Jesus would bring peace. He's the only unifying factor in this world. We cannot just say and pray for everyone to get along. The only way that barriers can be broken down between races and people of this world is through Jesus. 
No, he says that in Christ there's no Greek or Jew, slave or free, barbarian, Scythian, male, female. He takes down all these barriers in Christ. So the believer prays differently than the non-believer. We pray the heart of Jesus. And, but that's different sometimes than how we pray. We still pray like the barriers up, like, God, would just, you know, come and do this for me and do this for me and do this for me. Well, I love this book. I highlight this book all the time. If you ever want to just spend more time in prayer, and just, this is a phenomenal book. And uh, actually, Jay and I were talking about this, and I missed this entire section of this book that's in the introduction. It's called Morning Affirmations, and, and this book just kind of guides you through Scripture to pray different things. So, um, so Ken Boa takes different scriptures. And, and think about if your prayer life looked like this, all right? The very, first, uh, the very first heading for prayer in the morning affirmation is called submitting to God. I submit myself and my life to you, O God. And then he quotes Romans 12. In view of your mercy, O God, may I present my body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to you which is my reasonable service. May I not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of my mind that I may prove that your will is good and acceptable and perfect. Can you imagine if your every day started with a prayer, Lord, could I be submitted to you today? Instead of God, can you help my third cousin's aunt's toenail? Can, Lord, today, can I be submitted to you? The second praise is adoration and thanksgiving. The third one is examination. Holy Spirit, search my heart. Reveal to me any unconfessed sin you find in me. And he talks about my identity in Christ. Lord Jesus, I rejoice that my identity is in you. I have forgiveness. I have freedom. I have fulfillment. There's this filling of the Spirit passage where we're praying that the Spirit would control us. I mean, there's just all kinds of passages. And nowhere in, there, nowhere in here is the laundry list. There's no heading called laundry list, honeydew list. Because we're on, when we pray to the Father through Christ, what we're praying for is that Christ would transform us. And it's totally different when his death and resurrection breaks down these barriers. And the point of all this is joy. Look at verse 24. Until now you have not asked anything in my name. Ask and you will receive. And your joy will be complete. When we acknowledge that the hidden desire of our hearts, when we acknowledge that it's Christ, (laughs) when we say, yes, the hidden desire of my heart is Christ, I want to be like him, that's when joy comes. You see, Jesus just ripped down the barrier. He said, prayer isn't just a laundry list. Prayer is more. Prayer is allowing Christ to transform us by letting his heart be reflected in our hearts. There's a second barrier that I want to talk about today. And the second barrier is access to understanding. If we look at verse 25, 26, and 27, we see this second barrier here. Jesus was constantly talking in parables and using figures of speech. Look what he says in verse 25. Though I have been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language. Whenever Jesus would talk to his disciples, they'd get so frustrated because he'd be speaking in these parables and they just didn't get it, you know? 
This word figuratively, there's no real good English translation for this word. They, we, we use the word figuratively, but really it's, it's more codish than that. It's, it's really of, of enigmatic or obscure speech. That's what it, it's, it's speech that's an intended to obscure its meaning. And the disciples are wanting to know, Jesus, why do you do this? Can't you just speak to us plainly? Now, why did Jesus do this? Why did Jesus speak enigmatically or obscure, figuratively? Why did he do this? Well, look at this verse out of Matthew. I think this is really helpful in us understanding it. Matthew 13, the disciples came to Jesus and said, why do you speak to the people in parables? Kind of like, because, you know, we don't get it either. (laughs) Right? Why don't you just come out and tell us? And he replies, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven had been given to you but not to them. Whoever has, whoever has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. I mean, the point is that people who've hardened their hearts towards Christ wouldn't understand even if he told them plainly. Why? Because their hearts will only reject truth. But those who want to understand To them, more is given. And what Jesus came to do is to break down this barrier. To those who believe in him, we now have access to understanding. To those who don't believe, I mean, to to people you know in your life who don't believe, this whole Bible is a bunch of enigmatic, obscure, I don't get it. I mean, you talk to people who go, oh yeah, I tried to read the Bible once. I didn't get it at all. And there's just all this list of names, and I didn't know what they meant. And I mean, I, I just don't get it. You know, the, I mean, people who try to read the Bible, they don't get it. They don't understand. But you and I, if we believe in Christ, understand all the more. Our understanding is progressive. We continue to understand more and more. I, I had this uh, experience this week. Every time that I read the Bible, I've been reading this Bible a long time now. And every time I read it, something new occurs to me. Some new aspect. It's continually being revealed more and more to me. I, I was just reading and talking to someone about John chapter 6. You know, I just pre- preached through this. I thought I'd have a pretty good handle on every part of John chapter 6. And, and um, we're talking about the, the feeding of the 5,000. In John chapter 6, Jesus had just fed the 5,000. And crowds are just crazy around Jesus. They've just surrounded him, you know. And everything is going great. And the whole program is working really well. And people are flocking to him. And it's like, go Jesus. And then he says, by the way, if you want to follow me, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And people go... Say, what? 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 And the, the text says that, that people all just fell away from Jesus. Like they, the crowds just disappeared after that. And his disciples are sort of left there. And Jesus said to them, you don't want to leave too, do you? And I never saw this before. Like, like Jesus half expected them to go too. Like I, I, it's almost this, are you going to abandon me too? It was just a whole new, I never saw the heartbreak in Jesus in his voice. He, he genuinely hurt at abandonment. I never saw that before in the text, but it's there. Jesus breaks down barriers to our understanding of God the Father. If you look at verse 27, look what it says. Verse 27. No, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. You know, um, The point is God's love for them. This would be something new. 
He's breaking down a barrier in their understanding. It, this fact that God is passionately in love with people, that's, that's sort of a new concept for them. I mean, it's there in the Old Testament, but they sort of didn't get it. I had this experience this week, two different people, two conversations this month of people who told me uh, that, that God was continually revealing more to them in their understanding of him. One was with a girl. She's probably in her uh, early 20s. And, and we were talking about, I was talking about God, and, and she said, you know, I grew up to mistrust and fear God. Somewhere, someone had told her that when her, like a Sunday school teacher or something, had told her that when one of her relatives died, it might be because she had sinned, and that's why the, the, the person died. I mean, that's just horrible and just wrong and all of those things. But she sort of took that kind of teaching to heart, and she learned to fear and mistrust God. So as now, she's understanding Scripture, and this God who loves her is being revealed to her. It's like opening up all these new worlds. I was talking to somebody else who was talking to me that they viewed God as typically as a cosmic grandpa. God does love us, but, you know, someone, God's just kind of someone who would pat us on the back and say, okay, try to do better next time, you know. It's okay, Sonny, go on. And here we have this fascinating picture that God's not a cosmic grandpa, but God is holy. I mean, these, these, const, these things are constantly happening to us. Scriptures are the words that keep giving. To us. And what Jesus is saying is, when I'm dead and I rise and the Holy Spirit comes, you're going to have access to understanding now that you didn't have before. The third barrier is the barrier of belief. 28 to 31, really 32. Um, Okay, look at 28 for a second. Uh, In verse 28, Jesus says, I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I'm leaving the world and going back to the Father. 28 is an example of the straight talk expressed from Jesus, okay? I mean, this is Jesus just plainly saying, okay, friends, here's what's going to happen. I don't know if you remember, but for the last two chapters, while we've been dealing with it over months, Jesus dealt with it in the course of a few hours, and, and he's saying this stuff to them. And it wasn't just a couple hours ago in their conversation that the disciples were trying to get this message out of Jesus. You know, Jesus had said, uh, I'm leaving you now. And they'd say, What? Well, wait, when are you leaving and where are you going and with whom are you going and can we come with you? And, and, and they're like, Jesus, I don't get it. What's going on? Just talk plainly to us. So in 28, when Jesus finally does it, look at 29, what they say. Then Jesus' disciples said, now, finally, you're speaking clearly and without figures of speech. I mean, they're so excited, like, just give it to us straight, Jesus. Now we can understand and believe. Thank you. But look at verse 31. Jesus responds to this. And okay, you have to understand that I think the NIV, uh, the marginal reading is better here than the one in your text. The the NIV says, uh, you believe at last was Jesus' response. Like, thank you. You know, now that you understand, you can believe and you believe at last. But... I don't think that really makes sense. You know, Greek doesn't come with question marks and nice punctuation and a lot of times even spaces. So sometimes it's, you know, it's up for interpretation. But if you read the marginal note in your NIV Bible, it says, or on verse 31, do you now believe? It's not you believe at last. It's you really believe. Like you think you believe now, but really In other words, yes, you believe kind of, but you don't fully grasp it yet. 
which makes a lot more sense when you read verse 32. A time's coming and has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home. You will leave me all alone, yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. It makes a lot more sense. In other words, you think you believe you don't. A moment's coming when you all will abandon me. And it's true. They all pretty much abandoned him when he got arrested. Friends, you have to understand that life is a journey about growing and understanding more about Jesus. And you and I might think that our faith is solid. We might think it is. But it also may have never been tested. You know, we may have never had a chance to face hard questions. And, and I mean, you may never have had a chance to face a question of, you know, God, why did I lose this, the person I loved? I mean, you know, they died and I don't understand. Or why, why are my kids rebellious? You know, I worked my entire life to raise these kids and then they just abandoned the faith and I don't get it. Or, you know, why did my job just disappear? Or why is my marriage falling apart? Or maybe even, you know, what, why did I get caught, God? I didn't want to get caught and I got caught. I mean, any time that we have an opportunity like this, it's a chance for us to grow in our, in our faith and our belief in Christ. And this barrier came down. Jesus is saying, my death and resurrection provided an opportunity for you to truly believe. To truly believe and to grow in your belief. To grow in your faith. So the disciples certainly understood at this point that Jesus was um, a great guy. And probably they understood that he was the Messiah. But whether they understood yet that he was God, whether they understood yet that he had come to die for them, I don't think so. Their faith isn't complete. And Jesus is doing this continually in our lives. He's growing and challenging and stretching our faith. And we can start with this belief in Christ, this belief that he died and rose again. And then our faith continues to just grow and blossom throughout this. There's one more barrier that Jesus breaks down. The last barrier is the barrier of self. (laughs) Look at the first half of verse 33. Jesus says, okay, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you'll have trouble. I mean, this is a summary verse for everything Jesus has said in the last three chapters. This encompasses all the hard news, the bad news, everything that Jesus has said. This is an encompassing verse. It's a summary the thing that belongs, this, this thing that belongs to believers, this thing that enables them to make it through the difficulty of despair and of a broken and a corrupt world, that thing is peace. I mean, Jesus wants them to know trouble is coming. And the key is peace amidst trouble. And Jesus brings peace. What if we're to experience this peace? I mean, what do we have to do? Well, there's a barrier that has to be overcome. That's the barrier of self. I regularly read this commentary by Gary Burge, and uh, I really like what he says here. Listen to it. He says, in, verse, in chapter 33, he says, um, I have told this thing so you'll have peace. In the world you'll have trouble. Take heart, I have overcome the world. Now, now listen to these words. Jesus does not say, have courage, you will overcome the world. The Greek sentence structure is emphatic. Have courage. I have overcome the world. If Jesus had said, have courage, I have overcome the world, and you can too, 
there would be very little good news for us. <laughs> it's like a golfer, a master golfer that nearly drives on the green from every tee and says to you, have courage, I did it, you can do it too. There's no encouragement there. We have tried to overcome the world, he says, and we have failed. You and I, we are the greatest barrier to peace. We're the greatest barrier to peace. We love to trust in ourselves, but there is no overcoming the world without Christ. There's no overcoming the world in our own power. The older I get, the more I realize how little control of life that I actually have. I control very little about myself. So I I think that I can sort of mitigate loss in my life or, you know, be responsible and super controlling everything and just sort of anticipate every bad thing that can happen and cut it off before it happens. And I think that, but I'm wrong. Trouble is a promise. Did you see that? What's he say? In this world, you will have trouble. It's a promise. Okay? Jesus said you will have trouble. It's just that he struck down the barrier so that the world doesn't win. Jesus wins. And if you want to have peace in the midst of trouble, you have to understand that Jesus is in control and that Jesus overcomes. So we can too. You and I love to control our lives, don't we? We love to, you know, just kind of make sure that we got everything in control and, and, and try to eliminate trouble at every, every turn. But what if we embraced trouble as the promise that Jesus said it would be? And embrace trouble because we embrace Christ who overcomes trouble. And that's how we have peace. I, I, I really enjoyed the Lord of the Rings movies. I haven't got to reading all the books yet, but... Uh, but I've really enjoyed the movies, and uh, I love to talk with people about the Lord of the Rings movies. And J.R.R. Tolkien was, uh, was a believer in Christ, and he was trying to set out a worldview. So there's this message that's in, in these movies. And, and, of course, you know Frodo, the Hobbit, and the story. He's got to get the ring to Mount Doom, and it's like a book like this thick of his journey to Mount Doom, right? And uh, one of the things that I love about this book is they're constantly getting into trouble where they can't bail themselves out. The, you know, there's an army coming down and the city is going to be destroyed. And at the last minute, help comes from over the hill. You know, help comes from somewhere else because they couldn't do it on their own. And this, this keeps happening over and over and over in these books. Help comes from somewhere else. I mean, I just love that picture because that, that's sort of life. You know, we think, no, no, no. It's okay, Jesus. I got it. I got this under control. It's all good. No need for you. We didn't overcome the world. He overcomes the world. The, the best part of those books, that, that, the movie, is that the hero of the Lord of the Rings is the hobbit. The hero is this little short guy with furry feet that can hardly ride a horse, you know, and pick up a sword to fight anyone. He can't do anything on his own. And there's this, if you look, there's this message all throughout the movie that someone is orchestrating something bigger than they can do alone. But that's, you and I are hobbits, you know? I mean, you and I are completely helpless without God because we don't overcome the world. He does. He broke down these barriers. We can overcome the world and have a relationship with the Father because he did it. So in this world, we will have trouble, but he has broken down barriers. We can pray. 
we can understand, we can believe, and we can trust Him, not us, because of what He's done. So the worship team's coming back now. We're going to sing the song that I wanted to sing uh, right now, because um, the song is called um, Take Me In, and it's this it's an old Petrus song, like from 1982. That's where I first heard it anyway. And, uh, and the, the words of this song are this picture of this temple, right? And the, the, the picture of the temple with this, this curtain that tore and, and where the people in the Old Testament couldn't approach the holiness of God. They couldn't get to the Father because there was a visual barrier there. Jesus tore the barrier. And so we pray, take me past the outer courts to the holy place because we have access to the Father. Would you stand with us as we sing this song? Take me in.